Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As we start a brand new week here on the show, we begin with more somber news about gun violence. You've already heard the story on NPR and in other news sources this morning. Um, Four people shot and killed at a Sweet 16 birthday party in a small town in Alabama. Um, 28 people injured. Um, President Biden issued a statement about it overnight. Uh, I'll read you just a short portion of it. He said, what does our nation come to when children cannot attend a birthday party without fear? When parents have to worry every time their kids walk out the door to school, to the movie theater, or to the park? Guns are the leading killer of children in America, and the numbers are rising, not declining. He once again called for, of course, uh, more measures gun safety measures, and blasted Republican leadership for, quote, standing alongside the NRA in a race to the bottom on dangerous laws that further erode gun safety. And, of course, the um, NRA held a big uh, meeting over the weekend at which a number of uh, uh, Republican presidential candidates and presumed candidates attended and defended, as always, the NRA's position on the widespread availability use of uh, guns, widespread availability of guns. So we're going to talk about that. We'll put it in the context of Georgia as much as possible. And we've got a lot more to talk about on the show today as well. So let me get right to the panel. Uh, it's Monday. My partner from the AJC is political reporter and columnist, the author of The Political Insider, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and the woman who oversees the jolt at AJC.com, our good friend Patricia Murphy. Hi, Patricia. Good morning. All that sounds like um, probably makes me sound more important than I am. But yes, those are all my jobs. But it's great to be with you, Bill. Uh, no false modesty, <laughs> Patricia. In a very short time, you have become a pretty vital part of the political <laughs> journalism scene in Atlanta. And we're really happy to have you here. Um, we're also joined by uh, another journalist, Chance Chauncey Alcorn. Another one of the panelists we love having on the show, Chauncey, of course, reports for Capital B. Chauncey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Pleasure as always. Well, um, we're very happy to have you here. Alan Abramowitz is with us. He's now Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Emer I've always wondered, emeritus essentially means you're kind of retired. Is that basically what it's about, Alan? Basically, it means you're pretty old. <laughs> well, old or not, thank you for being here today. And, and we're joined also by King Williams, documentary filmmaker and journalist. Uh, King, thank you for coming in. You're working on a project that um, has, uh, is involved with uh, Capital B. Tell us a little about it. Uh, it's actually Canopy Atlanta, but thank you. It's Canopy Atlanta, and we're oh, giving canopy. voices to people. Yes, yes, yes. I have a little bit of an accent, so I'm trying to work on it for the show. So what is the project? 
Yeah, the project is just giving a voice to, to first-time journalists about their communities. And so we're talking about South DeKalb. And the week of April 24th, we're talking about South DeKalb residents' thoughts on Cop City. Oh, terrific. Terrific. Uh, and that's for Canopy. Where do we find Canopy? Uh, at CanopyAtlanta.org. Okay. Thank, well, thank you uh, for being here, King. Patricia, let's get right to it. Um, another mass shooting in uh, this time in Alabama. And, and I do want to put it in the context of Georgia, if I might, because after the school shooting in Nashville, the bank shooting in um, Kentucky, uh, it, subsequent to that, Governor Kemp was on CNN yesterday with Jake Tapper, and uh, he was asked how he feels about gun uh, violence. And I want to play, this is a this is a longer soundbite, Patricia, but I think it's important to hear a broader context in how he answers the question of whether he thinks it's time to put some restrictions on guns. Well, Jake, first of all, my thoughts and prayers certainly go out to the people of Kentucky and Tennessee. And, you know, I've been a governor during those times, too. Uh, where we've lost a lot of people. I've had to visit a state patrol officer that was shot um, by somebody that was illegally in a, in a forest, a forest protester. Um, you know, you saw those officers being assaulted when they were going in, true heroes, and we certainly appreciate what they do. So I will tell you in Georgia, uh, thankfully, we have been ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues when you think about school security. We did school security grants to every state, uh, every school in the state. Shortly after I was elected in 2019, I proposed another round of that this year uh, before both of these shootings of $50,000. So that is an issue we have to continue to work on. But also I'm proud of the fact that last year in the Georgia General Assembly, uh, the late great speaker David Ralston and I and the rest of the General Assembly passed a massive mental health bill to continue to work on these issues. So, Patricia, we should point out that, of course, this was yesterday morning before news of the shootings at the Sweet 16 party in Alabama. But give us your thoughts on the governor's response to Jake Tapper's question. So I have so many thoughts on that answer because I have a lot of thoughts on this issue. As a parent of two fourth graders, it is just so maddening to see um, the refusal to deal with both at the same time, mental health issues, which of course everybody wants uh, strengthened and dealt with and expanded, and uh, gun control. People call it gun safety, but it is safety and gun control. Um, even the most modest gun controls are complete non-starters in a GOP primary. When you're talking about somebody who's going to run for re-election again, it has kind of so infused that process that it's become... Um, an area where there is just no middle ground. And as a parent, um, as somebody who talks to other parents all the time of different um, political persuasions, this issue has really jumped over partisan lines for voters. Um, 
this is something that uh, a majority of Republicans would be willing to see some modest uh, gun reforms. Um, it's something that you hear even basketball coaches have been starting their press conferences, just begging for changes. Um, the Georgia General Assembly did pass mental health last year, but it was blocked this year for a reason that had nothing to do with the merits of that mental health bill. So if Republicans are serious about doing at least half of this equation, um, they did not get the job done this year. And voters that I talk to want both. And um, you don't have to pick. You need to do both. I think people are in strong agreement with that. Um, but there is a political process that is really uh, stopping this before it can even get off the ground. And American schools and children and teachers and police are paying for that. Chauncey, uh, it strikes me there's a lot of deflection in that answer. Uh, number one, thoughts and prayers, which has become the uh, almost cliched response. Not that it isn't, I mean, I don't doubt the, the sincerity of it. It's just, we now are starting to say, it really is that the only answer? Um, second, uh, talking about not gun control, but about school safety measures, you know, uh, that will protect students. We'll talk in a minute about the bill that he signed that he thinks will help in that regard. Um, uh, talking about uh, gun violence, not from the point of view of shooters in a school setting or whatever, but talking about the gun violence at the site of the Atl planned Atlanta Police Training Center when uh, an officer was shot um, and, in, and in return was killed by uh, gunfire. So all of that, and then mental health, which as Patricia points out, yes, is important. But give us your thoughts on all of this, Chauncey. Well, for one, I was I was uh, somewhat encouraged to see that this report has gotten uh, on the uh, Sweet 16 um, shooting in Alabama has gotten the attention that it does, because frankly, oftentimes uh, when the shooting victims are black and brown, when, when it's not at a school or a mall and things and it's not done with an AR-15 or a semi-automatic rifle, um, it tends to fly under the radar. And my reporting on gun violence over the years, one of the things that um, talking with Mark uh, Bryant at the Gun Violence Archive multiple times about this issue, and he's expressed frustration about this. He's, for those who aren't familiar, the Gun Violence Archive is kind of the premier um, uh, outlet that keeps track of gun violence across the country. Um, a lot of the times, particularly after the uh, mass shooting in Florida, oh God, I'm having a parkland, excuse me. Um, there was a lot of attention on this issue, but uh, they, everybody wants to talk about AR-15s, but in the, um, a majority of mass shootings happen with handguns. And uh, it happen uh, not in suburban communities where in, in schools, um, they happen in a lot of times in inner city gun violence and things of that nature. They can be retaliatory. And those are the quote unquote everyday shootings that don't tend to get as much national media attention so it's been this is uh and it, i don't i don't think they've released the information about the gun that was used in this instance one of the things that's also been interesting to me is the conversation around gun violence uh is always now about you know red flag laws and it's uh and um things of that nature that are trying to keep guns um you know limited um uh, the possession and the proliferation of guns we've seen this huge surge in gun um purchasing um that coincided with the pandemic um, and also an uptick in, uh, in shootings as well. But uh, the conversation about gun um, solutions doesn't even involve like getting rid of the guns that are out there. Um, if you 
flagged all the guns, you know, that are there, that that's going to only going to affect future sales. There's like two or three guns in this country for every person. Um, and a lot of the guns that are used in these shootings um, are illegal guns. Um, and uh, so, you know, these guns, the uh, gun laws don't necessarily always affect them. So it's a, it's interesting, first and foremost, it's encouraging to see that we're having this conversation about a uh, shooting that didn't happen at a school, that didn't happen in a, you know, an affluent white neighborhood. Um, but we have a lot of ground to make up if we're going to do, you know, what New Zealand and Ireland and other places where they had shootings and they bet they basically implemented strict gun control measures. And now you don't hear about those problems anymore. It doesn't seem like it's that complicated. Ellen and then King. Well, uh, I mean, Chauncey's exactly right that, uh, you know, what the, the shootings that get the publicity are the, you know, the mass shootings, the ones that take place in schools. Um, and they, and that's understandable, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, the ones that take place in malls and places like that. But the fact of the matter is the large majority of the of the deaths and uh, injuries that are caused by guns in this country are not involved, not part of mass shootings or um, there's the everyday sort of violence that we've sort of gotten used to. It doesn't get much publicity, uh, but but that that's where the vast majority of, of gun violence takes place. It's off the charts. I mean, our rate of gun violence, gun deaths is off the charts compared with any other uh, advanced you know country in in the world. Um, you know, and obviously the widespread availability of guns has a, a lot to do with that. It's also important to keep in mind that uh, uh, the, most of the deaths that take place as a result of gun violence in this country are suicides. There, there are more suicides with guns than homicides. Um, and obviously the, the ready availability of guns and access to guns is an important factor uh, in that we're, we're not going to see any action on it. You know, in, state, in states that are controlled by where we have Republican legislatures and governors like Georgia, it's very clear that nothing's going to happen. We just saw what happened at the NRA convention, uh, where we had Republican presidential candidates, you know, bowing to the NRA uh, and and pledging their enduring loyalty and 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 pledging to pr protect the Second Amendment uh, uh, no matter what, uh, uh, and uh, placing that ahead of just about any, anything else in importance. Um, so, uh, unfortunately. Uh, we're not going to see, as we could tell from the governor's response to that question, where he was really dodging the issue, um, not, nothing's going to happen. King? Yes. So when you look at a lot of the statistics on gun violence, there's a couple of things that are across the thread that are important. If you have more guns, um, you're going to have more homicides. If you have more guns, you're going to have more suicides. I think it's important now we start looking at gun violence as also a racialized issue. In the case of every single state that has a high rate of gun ownership and gun, su uh, gun suicides and homicides, the thing that they have in common is that it's typically Black or Latino males who are the ones who end up being the victims of these particular uh, policies. Also, when we talk about like what the rate of gun violence is in America, you're disproportionately more likely to be affected as a black man to be uh, a victim of gun violence than you are a white man. And it's also important that the lawmakers of these laws in every single state across the, the board are typically white men who write laws for white men, and even though statistically show they're more likely to die of their own firearm from homicide, from suicides rather than homicide. So I do think we need to start thinking about this through the, the lens of a racial policy. 
Patricia, you uh, wrote a column at the end of last week, or was it the Sunday paper? I frankly, uh, uh, I'm not clear on that. I guess it was the Sunday paper about uh, about the you know the similarities and differences between the Tennessee legislature and the Georgia legislature. And you talk, of course, about the expulsion of uh, Democrats, uh, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, the two young African-American legislators. You make the point that Justin Pearson uh, uh, drew uh, criticism when he uh, came into the chamber to be sworn in wearing his dashiki. Uh, and you say the Georgia legislature is more welcoming uh, in terms of diversity. They appeared to be this last session uh, that they can't expel members. The Republicans can't in the same way because they don't have a super majority here. But you say when it comes to their position on guns, Georgia and Tennessee are much alike. Yeah. So um, the Tennessee events, I think, just captured the nation's attention because it was just so obviously um, offensive, discriminatory. Um, in particular, the two freshman lawmakers, the two Justins, as they call them, describe the environment that they've been working in in Tennessee during this first year that they've been there. Um, and it has been um, what they just said, just a plain old hostile work environment. Um, when you compare that to what happens in the Georgia General Assembly, it is more, um, uh, it, the tone down there is more sort of slightly more moderate, more friendly. Uh, there were multiple members who wore traditional dress on uh, the first day. Um, that was not a problem at all. Uh, the uh, first woman to wear a hijab in the uh, state house said that she has, it's been more of a conversation starter. It certainly did not flag any house rules, <clears throat> even though typically members are not allowed to wear um, head coverings. Uh, but it was, it's just not been a situation in Georgia the way it has been in Tennessee, certainly not that same overtly hostile work environment. Um, but the but the result of those legislatures um, is uh, largely the same. And in fact, Georgia's uh, laws are even looser than those of Tennessee. So they both have the um, permitless carry that's been approved, meaning that they don't have to, you don't have to apply for a permit to carry a handgun or any weapon here um, in Georgia. Um, it is just more permissive in Georgia, despite the politics here, um, and despite the fact that Republicans don't have the supermajority, uh, just simply having a majority in either chamber or both chambers um, with an issue like this that is so polarized, that's really all Republicans need to pass these laws and keep them the way they are and continue to expand um, uh, access to guns instead of tightening access to guns. And so that was really about what my what my column was about. People said, oh, well, the same thing could not happen here in Georgia. Um, and that's right. It hasn't happened. But the same but this, essentially the same laws have been passed. And that's what that column was about. Um. So, King, uh, let's talk about what happened in the legislature in Georgia this session with guns. Um, you, you, Kemp, in that answer to Jake Tapper, points out the last session they awarded uh, grants to individual schools to beef up security uh, against an intruder. This, this year, they added to that with House Bill 147, which they called the Safe School Act, it requires Georgia classrooms to conduct intruder alert drills and create school safety plans. Schools then have to report those to the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. Uh, it's, it's also true in the bill that, uh, that, that parents can opt their children out of these uh, 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 measures, these drills. 
But then the other thing it does is it creates training for teachers to identify gang members in the classroom, part of the governor's whole effort this session to crack down on gangs. And, And that strikes me as putting teachers in a vulnerable position. And in terms of these emergency drills, I'm old enough to remember what it was like to go through drills for nuclear bombs, duck and cover back in the 50s when I was a little kid in elementary school. It was traumatizing then. This kind of thing may be useful, but terribly traumatic, I think, for children today. Yeah, to that point, I do think that for Gen Z now, unfortunately, this is going to be their version of a nuclear drill. I do think it's important to know that by the governor keep doubling down on these kind of suspect claims of of gang laws. What we're really going to see now is a re-shifting of what people think gangs look like. I have some general questions about the way that the state of Georgia already identifies what a gang could be and how gangs operate. It seems very out of line of what the national standards are of what gangs do and what gangs operate as. And what this really looks like is going to be an excuse now for a greater militarization and a greater politicization of young men in particular in Atlanta's public school systems. Alan? Um, so this is a bill typical of the way Republican governors and legislatures have responded to the issue of gun violence has been by pushing for uh, greater emphasis on school security, um, even uh, at times calling for the uh, ar- arming of teachers. Um, we haven't actually seen that happen very many places, but that's something that's been you know, proposed. It's sort of like any, anything to try to avoid the underlying uh, problem, which is the widespread availability of guns, um, and the, certainly and the availability of certain kinds of guns that are often used uh, in these mass shootings that allow the perpetrator to fire uh, multiple rounds in, in, in rapid at, at, at rapid succession that result in multiple deaths and injuries. So they just don't want to address that issue, and so you know I think this is a way of dodging it. I think it will probably be pretty ineffective. Um, maybe not much more effective than, you know, hiding under your school desk in uh, in the event of a nuclear attack, which is what we were told to do. I'm old enough also to remember that. Um, And remember, even at the time, it seemed ludicrous. Um, And, um, you know, this frankly seems pretty, pretty, pretty far-fetched to me as a a solution to this, this problem of gun violence. Chauncey, to finish out this part of our conversation, I want to go back to the NRA uh, gathering over the weekend. Um, As Alan and others have pointed out, you know, this was an opportunity for Republicans to uh, show their obeisance to the NRA. But nobody, nobody uh, did what Christy Noom did, the governor of South Dakota. In her pro-gun speech, she pointed out that her granddaughter, I think who is now two years old, already has, um, Chauncey, two guns, a long gun and I think a handgun of some kind. She also has, what is it, Sparkles the Pony, I think. So Christy Noom, Governor Noom, thinks she's a pretty well-rounded kid. Yeah, I think uh, a a lot of Americans are kind of tired of the NRA's uh, uh, quote-unquote influence. I know that there's been a lot um, with the uh, investigations into them with Letitia James in New York. Um, there, there was the perception that their power might might have uh, been dwindling, but it doesn't appear based upon this last weekend that that's always the case. I think the bigger thing out of coming out of Tennessee that's also encouraging is we're seeing now much more focus from a lot of folks uh, across the country 
on state um, elected officials, not just um, folks, you know, have, uh, working on this in Washington. Um, we are seeing a lot more now. Uh, uh, people are realizing that a lot of these state legislatures, this is something that Democrats lamented for years about uh, the President Obama um, being that uh, there was so much uh, celebration and adulation of Barack Obama during the uh, 2008, 2012 uh, victories for Democrats that they didn't realize that they lost like most of the state leg legislatures across the country while he was in office. And now we're, um, uh, on the issue of gun violence, uh, we've, we've seen this going from state house to state house. Uh, uh, folks are realizing that this is where a lot of these battles may or may not be won or lost. Um, and uh, the conversation uh, around that, you're seeing much more of a, of a focus on statewide, uh, excuse me, on state elected officials. So I think that that's something that's also encouraging. Patricia, before we take a break, uh, give us a, a conclusion of this segment of the show. Oh, uh, just my quick point is, you know, my kids had their first active shooter drill in first grade and they were taught how oh. to, they said we learned how to go into the bathroom in case the bad guys come. Like it is not a first graders job to protect themselves. It's our job to protect them. And as everybody else on this panel has said, it's not just schools. It's all over the city, all over the state, all over the country. And until these laws change, nothing's going to change. Um, th thank you for sharing that. Um, it's really, it's really kind of chilling uh, to hear your comments about your first grade children uh, going through an experience like that. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We've got a lot more to talk about with this panel when we come back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. King Williams, Alan Abramowitz, Chauncey Alcorn, and Patricia Murphy joined me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Patricia, uh, during his campaign for re-election, Governor Kemp uh, probably very wisely ignored all of the ways in which uh, Donald Trump was attacking him throughout the campaign, as he had been doing ever since Kemp refused to cooperate with uh, Trump in efforts to overturn the outcome of the election here. But he basically kept his uh, cool about all that. Over the weekend, at a gathering of, of major uh, GOP donors and leaders, if for the first time, I, as, as far as I know, he really didn't uh, hold back. He essentially said that there was no way that uh, the White House was going to become go back to Republican control uh, if Donald Trump continues uh, or Trump isn't going to get into the White House if he continues to be obsessed by losing the 2020 election. And uh, he's who, he was asked about that, too, in his interview on CNN with Jake Tapper. Let's listen to what Kemp said. If we get distracted and talk about other things that the Democrats want to talk about, like these investigations, regardless of what you think about the politics of those, if we get distracted every day and let the media just talk about that, that only helps Joe Biden. It does not give us a path for Republicans to win. 
focus on the future, not look in the rear view mirror. You know, if you look in the rear view mirror too long while you're driving, you're going to look up and you're going to be running into somebody and that's not going to be good. Patricia. So I have been so fascinated by Brian Kemp over the last 72 hours because he really did during his own campaign and during the 2020 election, try to keep a very low profile, stick to what he's focusing on, do not get wrapped up in Donald Trump. Um, And it was incredibly effective for him. But he made the decision over the weekend to affirmatively go on a Sunday show and on CNN of all places, um, because that is a place where most Republicans uh, don't like to see their leaders showing up um, on CNN. It's considered a bit of a betrayal in some cases. Um, But to go on and really take on the two planks of Donald Trump's entire political existence at this point, um, uh, lying about the 2020 election and um, uh, this total obsession over the brewing indictments likely coming against him uh, here in Fulton County, as well as what's already happening in New York City. So it really does feel like um, Kemp is working to take a leadership position in the Republican Party on this effort to move past Donald Trump. And there are very, very few people um, doing that right now. And those who are, are getting absolutely hammered by Donald Trump. That's less and less effective for Trump. Um, but, you know, when you put, when you look at the latest poll from UGA, looking at a potential GOP primary in 2024, mm-hmm. Donald Trump is winning that primary with 51% of support, um, with very high numbers um, among uh women in particular in the GOP primary electorate. So um, it is a, it feels like these two uh, forces, this Kemp move on force versus the Donald Trump. I can't stop talking about 2020 and my whole election next year is about it being stolen from me last time. These are on a collision course, like here in Georgia and around the country. And the fact that um, Governor Kemp is the one leading it is really something we're going to have to unpack for quite some time. And it's fascinating. But, you know, Alan, what's fascinating about that is that, uh, as as uh, uh, Patricia points out, the AJC poll, well over, well, about a year ahead of our uh, primary, uh, Republican primary here, both primaries here probably, um, does show Kemp with a, with a big, big lead over Ron DeSantis and the others, uh, tr- you know, Nikki Haley, already in the race and others unannounced way, way behind. I mean, you're looking at a GOP primary here where it looks like Trump can win. And I don't know where Kemp lines up as that campaign unfolds early next year, later this year, early next year. It's going to be really something to watch. Exactly. I I mean, Trump seems to continue to have a hold on the Republican primary electorate, if anything, um, his support has increased uh, in the last few weeks, you know, since the indictments and, and since his arraignment. Uh, we're seeing Republican primary voters rally around him. And and but Brian Kemp is right about one thing. Uh, Trump's presence and influence is a, a, a big problem for the Republican Party. And we saw that in the 2022 midterm elections when numerous candidates uh, endorsed by Donald Trump uh, won Republican primaries and then went on to lose general elections and and winnable races and what would otherwise probably have been winnable races. But I want to add one thing to that in light of of, uh, Governor Kemp's comments. Donald Trump is a big problem for the Republican Party 
But the Republican Party has other big problems right now and had other big problems in the 2022 midterm election. And Governor Kemp is ignoring those other problems. In fact, he's part of the problem um, because some of the other problems the Republicans had in the midterm elections and are likely to continue to have going toward 2024 are the party's extreme positions on issues like guns and abortion. Uh, and Kemp is very much in, in, you know, in line with those positions. He's, he's proposed weakening gun, gun laws in the state of Georgia, um, and he has endorsed uh, efforts to, in, uh, to enact very restrictive abortion laws in Georgia. The Republican Party was hurt badly in the 2022 midterm elections, not only by uh, weak uh, candidates endorsed by Donald Trump, but by the, the aftermath of the Dobbs decision uh, and uh, uh, public discontent, widespread dissatisfaction with, with the party's position on abortion, and the fact that Republican-controlled states like Georgia passing these very restrictive laws, and gun control as well. Um, and, and so that, you know, I, I, the, the governor, if, if, if he really wants to move the Republican Party in a direction where it can broaden its support, he's going to have to go beyond criticizing Donald Trump to recognize that the party is adopting some very unpopular positions uh, on, on these other uh, issues that are cost, costing its support. Well, of course, we should point out that he's serving his final term as governor. We don't know what his political future is, but Alan, you probably suspect that there is some kind of race, maybe for U.S. Senate in 2026, so that he does mm-hmm. want to uh, uh, be a player. He, he's got to figure out his position on issues that you're talking about. But the, the other thing about that, Chauncey, is in some ways, Donald Trump's continued attacks on Brian Kemp and his refusal to shoot back created the impression for many uh, voters out there, well, maybe not many, but enough, that Kemp was somehow a moderate. And of course, as Helen Abramowitz points out, a six-week abortion ban continuing to loosen restrictions on guns does not make Brian Kemp a moderate in any way. Yeah, I think Alan makes some great points. In particular, uh, this uh, what the, what we've seen now trying to unfold in the Republican side is trying to divorce Trumpism from Donald Trump. Um, Trump was kind of has been this kind of culture war crusader um, and a hero. I think uh, among the right, I think the uh, uh, one thing that's true in American politics is Americans generally don't like losers, and for um, Trump was an underdog coming into 2016. He he overcame the odds to win and and did it in a way, you know, kind of brash um, and unapologetic way that a lot of Americans, um, even those that didn't agree with him politically, admired. You saw a lot of celebrities who, you know, particularly guys like uh, uh, I hate to bring him up in this conversation, but Kanye West or mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle or others, kind of like, wow, it's kind of interesting that this guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, you know, kind of came in as this unknown political figure and defeated all these folks. But when he lost in 2016 and he uh, then his candidates lost, particularly in Georgia in 2020 um, and uh, 2022, mm-hmm. that was when you uh, saw, you know, kind of dissension in the ranks. And uh, I think that the indictments um, had the unintended consequence of making him sort of a martyr of, of to some on the right. And uh, that's when you saw his poll numbers surge a bit. Um, and uh, so that kind of put uh, people like uh, Governor Kemp in a position of, uh, you know, 
what are we going to do? Are we going to speak out against this? Because it doesn't really bode well for them, uh, you know, heading into 2024. King, um, one final uh, uh, note about this interview that uh, Jake Tapper did with uh, Brian Kemp on CNN. I thought it was great. Patricia pointed out, uh, I hadn't thought about it, but you'd expect Brian Kemp to go on Fox to talk <laughs> about politics, um, not CNN. Uh, so it was an interesting move on his part. But, but, um, Jake Tapper introduced a segment by essentially saying, you know, that Georgia is a purple state. And and Kemp pushed back on that, saying, well, I mean, it's true that Joe Biden won the presidential election here. And there are two Democratic senators in uh, uh, Washington now from the state. But he pointed out that every statewide office was won by Republicans, uh, that Republicans still obviously control both branches of the legislature. Um, and, and I thought it was a, a good point to make to a national audience that um, may have a misconception about just how purple Georgia really has. And actually, King, you weigh in on that. And then I think Abramowitz, uh, Professor Abramowitz might have something to say about that as well. But you first, King. Yeah, I think what Georgia really does is they have a Democratic Party that's a national party, and then they have a state-level Republican Party, which is still more of the same. And I think that's more of a, a, a rather a shift of like most Democratic voters don't vote down ticket, um, and they don't also typically have a really good grasp of who state and local officials are. There's also not a lot of star power when it comes to the non-national uh, tickets. So I do think that's more of an issue. I do think of Brian Kemp, I would be careful with what I'm saying, because when you gerrymander a state like they have, you really do have an opportunity to say that you have a, a, a red state, when in reality what you do is you have a gerrymander state. So I would think he should be reflecting it on Georgia oh. as a gerrymander state versus an actual uh, red state. Alan, you love to crunch numbers. You're a data guy. Uh, how would you uh, assess what Kemp said? Uh, I definitely think it's pretty accurate to describe Georgia as a purple state. Um, you know, if you if you look at, I'd look at presidential elections first and foremost as as the as the most important indicator of where a state is politically, because our politics have become very nationalized in recent years, and what happens at the presidential level is has a big impact on what happens below that level. Uh, it's true that Republicans won all the statewide races and control the legislature, but it was a midterm election with an unpopular Democrat uh, in the White House. One would expect Republicans to do pretty well. The fact that the Democrats managed to hold on to that Senate seat here, I think, is what is perhaps more surprising. Um, I think come you know, 2024 and 2026, and especially thinking of the statewide races in 2026, when uh, we won't have an incumbent Republican governor running, I think that will be a more clear test mm. of the relative strength uh, of the parties in these statewide races. But I think it's almost certain that Georgia is going to be a key battleground state in the 2024 uh, presidential election. Uh, I think you'll see both, but despite the fact that Democrats did, decided not to hold their convention here. I think you're going to see a lot of resources invested in in Georgia because there are only about six states that are looking to be likely competitive uh, in the next presidential election. There's a very limited number of these swing states that will determine the outcome of the presidential election. Georgia is almost certainly going to be one of them. So Patricia? I completely agree that Georgia is a battleground state, and I define that by can a 
candidate of either party wins statewide in the right circumstances? Is it still a good investment for both parties to play here? And yes, it is very clearly. Um, but I would say that Kemp won by more than seven points in 2022. And um, <laughs> I was I personally was surprised that the abortion issue and the gun issue were really um, not at the top of those voters' minds. The economy continued to be the dominant story um, across most uh, most uh, groups that we were polling. Um, uh, safety was also a big piece, although that means different things to different people. Um, and Democrats had Stacey Abrams, who was their star, and um, I think performed uh, more poorly than people expected her to. And so I think Democrats do need to do some soul searching either in how they turn their voters out, how they excite their voters, or how they appeal to those moderate independent voters, um, because the stars were really aligned for them, except for Joe Biden, who was not popular at the time. But um, I mean, Kemp won this state decisively. And so I think that's why people are listening to him also when it comes to national politics. Uh, real quick, Alan, because I'm late for a break. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I would push back a little bit on that, that we have to keep in mind, Kemp is running as an incumbent governor. Uh, and do you know how many incumbent governors lost their seats in the 2022 midterm elections? One. Uh, so <laughs> oh, out of okay. 36 or so who are running. Uh, it's very tough to defeat an incumbent governor. I'm not that impressed by his seven-point margin over Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I got to get to it. But real quick, though, before I do, Patricia, you know, uh, Alan brought up the fact the convention didn't come to Atlanta. Obviously, it's going to be in Chicago. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. But the day uh, after that announcement, we pointed out the number of cities in which uh, parties have held their conventions and their candidate did not go on to win that state in the presidential election. The last time we had one in Atlanta, of course, Michael Dukakis was the candidate in 88 and he didn't win Georgia. But the reason I bring it up now is Democrats here are being pretty smart. They're trying to leverage the fact that they didn't get the convention to get more resources out of the DNC for races in 2024. Yeah, and I think that's what really does make the difference in an election. It has a lot less to do with where they hold their convention, which is really just sort of TV stage for pretty pictures and good parties, um, than the amount that they're willing to invest, um, not just during the election, but well ahead of the election to be building up those grassroots. Okay, we got to get a break in. We'll be back with more in a minute. Chauncey Alcorn, for 47 years, the Urban League has been putting out an annual State of Black America report. They released their most recent report on Saturday, and as Ernie Suggs described it in his article about the report for the AJC, quote, the report argues right-wing extremism is spreading in classrooms, law enforcement, the military, and Congress, resulting in rising violence, oppressive laws, and racial polarization. And then here's a quote that Mark Moriel, the president of Urban League, gave to uh, Suggs. The mainstreaming of extremist ideology is an existential threat to American democracy, the rule of law, and decades of hard-won progress toward an equitable, inclusive, more perfect union. And, of course, he suggests that a lot of this 
is aimed at uh, keeping African Americans from attaining true equity. <clears throat> Chauncey, you're, are you muted? Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I was going to say that this is an encouraging report, and this and just the fact that it's being done is, uh, is focusing on Black folks in Georgia, which is, um, you know, a population that has been long underserved. Um, I think one of the more striking um, aspects of it to me was looking at the economic trends that were, were highlighted in the report, which, uh, you know, they, uh, the report authors noted was the number one issue um, for the folks uh, that they were working on. The median wealth of Blacks, uh, as they uh, anticipate, will fall to zero by the year 2053. 21.9% um, of of Georgia's Black students in the fourth grade are reading at or above a proficient level, only 21 uh, 0.9%. Approximately 50% of inmates admitted um, to the Georgia Department of Corrections in 2021 were Black, um, even though Black Georgians at the time made up 32% of the state's population. 54% of infant deaths, even uh, again, noting that one third of the population makes up 54% of infant deaths, uh, going back to some of those um, mortality uh, rates that we talked about and health disparities. Um, economic the uh, housing and transportation conditions, oh, again, were the most important issue facing the state of uh, Georgia. So while the state has been enjoying uh, mm -hmm. kind of a of a resurgence in terms of of you know companies coming into the state, investing in the state, things of that nature, that were, there's certainly kind of a tale of two states, and and black folks, unfortunately, um, too often are are getting the short end of the stick. So I think it's encouraging to see this report, and hopefully, you know, it, it's interesting to see what uh, some folks like Governor Kemp and the Republican uh, majority leaders um, at the state house are going to do to address some of these issues that are affecting a third of their population in the state of Georgia. King, um, in the study that the uh, Urban uh, uh, League uh, released, in talking about law enforcement, they had one piece of uh, data that I thought was particularly interesting. They cited a, a report from, the, from California State University uh, pointing out that hate crimes increased by 44% in 2021. This is nationwide. But at the same time, the Anti-Defamation League reported a 22% drop in hate crimes reporting from law enforcement agencies over that same period of time. And Urban League suggests that is part of the normalization of right-wing activities and right-wing incidents or hate crime incidents uh, that law enforcement isn't taking as seriously as they uh, might have uh, at one point. Yeah, I do think that is very troubling. And I do think it reflects something that we see going on in Atlanta, too, which is this rise of Instagram crime porn accounts. It's something that's been happening since 2020, with the biggest being uh, ATL Scoop, which started out as an anti-Black Lives Matter account by a conservative culture warrior. Um, and now that is effectively the second largest news site for Atlanta news for millennials on Instagram as a platform. It has more than uh, WSB, the AJC. It is the platform for news. Uh, but you also see that regards to the, across the broader internet, which is this idea of conservative media accounts taking over what people see as news and using that through places uh, like the Shade Room in, in particular, which has the largest number of new subscribers on Instagram in total as distributing news. And it's going to be a problem that we can't really solve as easily as we think. 
Patricia, one of the other things the report uh, argues is that, well, they don't argue it. They say that 180 government entities across the country have introduced more than 500 legislative bills, executive orders, and other uh, actions against critical race theory in just the last two plus years. And of course, we've seen that in Georgia. Yes, we absolutely saw that with the bill to uh, prevent teachers from discussing uh, divisive concepts, although there was not even agreement on what divisive concepts are. Um, uh, Georgia did pass a hate crimes law um, uh, within the last two years, which was, I think, really important legislation that uh, Democrats were very much behind and have been urging for quite some time. So, you know, I think that... uh, you know, there is a, a, a kind of a small victory in that piece. But of course, that is just prosecuting hate crimes after they've already happened. Uh, they were not able to add um, anti-Semitic language to that bill earlier this year either. Um, and I do think it's fascinating what King brings up in terms of uh, the role of media and social media uh, that is performing as a news source and sort of disguised as a news source, um, presenting people with information um, that is so heavily skewed. It literally skews people's views of reality. And um, I think also the way that a lot of our members of Congress, and you have to put Marjorie Taylor Greene at the top of this, a a lot is probably too strong. The way that some members like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, use incredibly vindictive, offensive language in their own um, presentations, even um, from her own account as a member of Congress, um, that adds to the normalization that this is somebody elected to Congress, um, appointed to committees by uh, GOP leadership, um, uh, campaigning with Donald Trump. And um, it's just seen as it is part of her uh, her uh, persona as an elected Republican who faces really no no threat of not being reelected unless she wants to step down. Uh, Alan, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene defended the uh, 21-year-old who has now been uh, arrested and accused of uh, leaking all of those very sensitive government documents by saying that because he was a white Christian, he was victimized by the Biden administration. Just another example Mm of how how hate speech enters her uh, 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 accounts, her Twitter account. Right. And I think that's a great example of the sort of normalization of right-wing extremism that we're seeing occur within one of our two major political parties. Uh, So if you look at where the Republican Party is today, you know, we find there's a very large segment of that party um, in Congress and here in Georgia, you know, who are uh, supporting these these kinds of, of measures uh, and putting out that sort of, of, uh, of messaging and the, the, the most disturbing thing about Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, to me uh, is, is that she is now uh, in a position of considerable influence within the Republican Party, that she has been accepted. Uh, uh, you know, uh, she has uh, uh, been uh, uh, getting a lot of support from from the speaker, um, that she's an important part of his coalition. Uh, that's very disturbing. Uh, hence, by the way, uh, Chauncey, the Urban League talking about the mainstreaming of right-wing extremism. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as Ellen points out, being the perfect example of that. We are completely out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Chauncey Alcorn, Alan Abramowitz, King Williams, Patricia Murphy, 
I'm very grateful to you for starting off our week here on the show. Tomorrow, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about uh, major immigration issues in the news. Chuck Cook uh, will be with us. And of course, tomorrow, Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, will be on as well. So I hope you'll come back and join us for that. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. I'll see all of you on tomorrow's Political Rewind.